The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of the Lord, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. At Sacred City Church, we preach exegetically. That means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. And so you have found us midway through Peter's first, little, first letter. And what this letter has been, it's been a running dialogue. And, and, and from week to week, we're building, well, essentially Peter is building on what he's saying from verse, you need to understand what he said in chapter one to understand what he's gonna say in chapter four. And so he, he's sort of building out his, his thesis or what he's trying to get across to his original audience. Now, today I wanna just provide um, some highlights uh, if you're, so you can track with us if you're visiting um, because a lot has been said to get to the scripture that we're at today. And really, Peter's whole thing, the, the main point that Peter's trying to get across here is God's great mercy. That is the initiator of everything that Peter is, has talked about so far or will talk about later on. He's saying that this great mercy has been revealed to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ in the good news of the gospel. And that is simply put like this. It, you are worse than you thought but simultaneously more love than you could ever dare to dream. Now, some people who hear this, it, it, it just makes them melt. It clicks, this makes sense. Their life unfolds in this like messy yet beautiful expression of life because the gospel profoundly validates two truths about them or two things, that they, one that they know is true and one that they hope is true. One is the reality of their sinfulness that they are not living up to the standard, that everybody kind of feels that interior shame, that guilt, that says, man, I'm just not it. But at the same time, the gospel also satisfies this deep desire to be loved for how we are. And people are drawn to that. It radically changes them, so much so that the language Peter uses is that they are born again, a whole new life. But not everyone responds to this good news the same way. While some people just open up to this, other people shut down to it. They, they think it's offensive, it's foolish, it's insignificant. Some people will dismiss it, be, and it is really quite a bummer because God's desire is for everyone to respond favorably to his mercy. But as people reject this word of mercy, there is this hardening effect that takes place. Not only do people grow hard towards God, sort of keep him at arm's length, but what eventually happens is they also become hard toward Christians. Now, this is the context that Peter writes. Uh, as he's writing to the original audience, they are very familiar with what this feels like. They're living in a, a culture where people don't like them, where people are pushing them to the edges, to the margins, 
They're being oppressed, not so much physically, where they're being beaten and tormented, not yet anyway. Um, that comes a few years later where that, when, underneath Nero's reign. But they are being socially ostracized. They're pushed away. Now, this leaves Christians sort of cloudy and confused about what it looks like to live in such a hostile culture. The question is, do we cut ourselves off from the world? Do we, do we retreat to monasteries and Amish villages? Or do we revert back to our life before we experience God's mercy, right? We ask ourselves, what sort of compromises can I make so I can fit in with this culture a little bit better? But in this letter, Peter's command is to lean into your true identity that God has given you through his mercy. He's saying, be who God has made you. He's saying, be holy because God has made you holy. So this means we engage in the culture, but we do not revert back to the culture. We are redemptive, that as Christians, our lives get to live a better narrative. To live this way requires God's mercy, which is not only necessary for salvation, but a daily mercy. It has to be in view for Christians to live this way. And so time after time, Peter, as a great pastor, he gives instructions, and then he goes back to the mercy of God that makes this possible. And really, the capstone of this here is when he says in, in chapter 2, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, mercy but now you have received mercy. See, this is a game changer. This, this mercy is not just about getting to heaven when you die. It's, it's really what it's doing. This mercy gives us glimpses of heaven here on earth now. By transforming individuals and then assembling those individuals into a transformed community, God is revealing himself everywhere. See, this is what God is saying. He said, by my mercy, my people are different. The, this is, Christians are to make a positive impact on the culture for the better. Now, there are several examples of this throughout history. But in real time, the church has become responsible for some of this decline in our culture. We haven't really done that. Now, if you don't believe me, you can ask any server in our cities here. The worst shift to work is Sunday lunch. Instead of being generous, as the gospel compels us to do, Christians tend to be stingy. Christians tend to be hypocritical, right? When, when Christians, specifically white Christians, are so against abortion, yet when there are black men being killed by police, they remain silent, right? We get into uppity about the flag when people kneel for the flag rather than realizing that flag stands for justice for all people. tend to become judgmental instead of being hospitable to the sojourner. We serve with conditions or inauthentic, right? Where people with real problems are actually turned off by Christians because they see us as phony. Now, if you look at all the places where the church has gone wrong, 
at the root of the issue is forgetting mercy. Either Christians forget how mercy meets you where you are with no conditions, no stipulations, no hoops to jump through. Right, this is, this is primarily why Christians become so judgmental. They, they forgot how mercy found them. So they become impatient, ungenerous, unsympathetic, or we forget how mercy transforms us, that it makes you a new creature with a new identity, with a new life, that when you experience God's mercy, he has big plans to make you like him, not just created in the image of God, but embodying the characteristics that God himself carries. See, this mercy has power to loosen the chains of our former ignorance, of our, the desires of our flesh, and it liberates you to being fully human. See, you cannot be fully human if you are bound by the chains of sin. And mercy breaks those chains. And, and in today's passage, Peter is going to come back to both aspects of mercy, right? The fact that, that we must accept mercy and then that mercy transforms us. And he begins by picking up where he left off in chapter 2, verse 12, when he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And so he's going to carry on by fleshing this out for us, what it looks like to live a transformed life. And today, he's specifically going to dive into what this looks like in the civil arena. Now, honestly, I've been dreading this text since we started this, this, this study in First Peter, because it is a hard one. It's very nuanced, it's very complicated, right? This is the downside of preaching exegetically. I don't get to skip around and, and avoid these tricky spots. And the reason why this is so difficult is because this is a topic that's already very polarizing in our society, right? Politics. There may not be anything more polarizing right now in our culture in politics. It's a pretty volatile topic these days. And some people might think that the pulp, there's no place for uh, political talk in the pulpit. And I do agree to some extent, but here's my pushback on that. The gospel shapes everything that we do. The gospel shapes everything that we do, including politics. So if you are a Christian, you carry with you a Christian worldview. Now, a Christian worldview is to be influenced by the word of God, primarily, not by your political party. And so we need to sort of reorient ourselves. What is a Christian worldview? How does God direct us to live as Christians within a culture governed by civil authority? And what makes this text tricky is that it can be easily used for wrong. It can be used to silence people without power. And wrongly handled, this text can be very destructive, but rightly handled, this text is incredibly liberating. Because this text has less to do with verses 13 and 14 and much more to do with verses 15 through 17. It is about your posture, not your politics. So this is my thesis for this sermon. <clears throat> that God's mercy is so radical, changes you in so, so profoundly, it alters your posture so greatly that it alters the way you view civil leadership. 
So here's my, here's my plea to you this morning. Do not get lost in the smog of political talk and dismiss the beauty of what God is doing with his people. So together, let us commit to giving our ear to the lamb this morning, not to the elephant or the donkey. All right, let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we need to hear from you. More than we need advice or tips to live our life, we need to hear the thundering voice of God and what you have to communicate to your people today. So we invite you, Spirit, I ask you would fill me up. You would use me well, that all of me would fade away so only your word stands. Help the listener. Listening is a spiritual endeavor. We need your help to even listen correctly. So would your spirit be at work in that end? And Father, through this text, through this, this preaching and expounding on this text, would you be glorified for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. If you wanna open your Bibles uh, to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, we'll get diving in here. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. Now this first phase that Peter is going to unpack for us and what it looks like to live a life of mercy deals with our civil responsibility as Christians. But before we get there, we need to deal with Peter's first charge. He says, be subject. Now other translations say, submit yourselves to and this, this language will pop up a few more times in the coming weeks. But what he is saying here is yield yourself to the influence of those who have been given authority in your life. This is a non-negotiable distinctive of the Christian life. See, if Jesus is your Lord, it means that you yield to his ways. And his ways include yielding to the authority that he delegates in other arenas. We'll see that. We'll see that with church leadership. We'll see that in the household uh, with, with servants and, and their masters or employers and employees next week. Here's why. This is why Jesus cares about how you submit to authority. Being under proper authority is the way toward beauty and human flourishing. Being under the proper authority is the way that humans flourish and become beautiful, create beautiful things. Now, many people in our culture don't see it that way. They see authority, whether it be spiritual or civil, as repressive. They see it as limiting. It prevents me from autonomy, doing what I want, when I want, with who I want, whenever I want. There are many of us who set out to be our own authority, to make our own rules, or at least submit ourselves to someone else's constructed rules. And it might appear that this is freedom or autonomy, but really it's just an illusion. See, if you buy into that, you're being played. Because the reality, if you live that way, it means you are just being subjected to the passions of your flesh or someone else's. And you might object and say, well, you, well at least they're my passions, and I might say, sure, they're your passions, but you don't control them. They control you. So you're not really in control. It's your passions, the flesh, that directs you. See, being truly autonomous is not a real thing. It is a myth. 
you will always be subject to something because that is the way that God designed us. It'll either be your perceived needs, your sexual desires, your need to be right, to look good, to, to meet the internal standards that you or someone else imposes upon you, you will be subject to those things. But the appeal of the Christian life is to subject yourself to the proper life-giving authority. Now, ultimately, this authority is Jesus, but he delegates this authority to various spheres in our life. And by being subject to the proper authority, it creates something both beautiful and flourishing. Now, imagine for a moment if Trent was up here leading worship this morning and said, you know what, I don't want to be confined by this key, this meter, these lyrics. I don't want to subject myself to the piece of paper that's in front of me. The band starts playing, sound good, and then Trent chimes in and everybody's like, well, Trent, what are you doing, buddy? Like, uh, you're, you're not strumming right, you're saying the wrong words, uh, you're not singing on, on pitch. Like, what's going on here, right? It, it would not be beautiful. It would be frightening and repulsive. But, but to an even greater degree, imagine if you're on your way home and no one regards the, the traffic laws anymore. Now at this point, failure to subject yourself to the proper authority not only is not beautiful, it's, it's repulsive, but it's also dangerous. It puts your life and other drivers' life in jeopardy. See, this is just to illustrate that being subject to the proper authority will always create beauty and order and human flourishing. Now, the important distinction here is the word proper, right? What does it mean to submit to the proper authority? Is it just the authority I agree with, the ones who are most in line with my politics, the, the wholesome ones? But what does Peter say? He says, be subject to every human institution even the ones you don't agree with. See, there are a lot of people who don't want to hear that. You might think, well, you know, when Peter wrote this, he didn't know that Trump was going to be involved in this equation, right, maybe? And it might sound absurd to us, but this command that Peter gives here would be even way more absurd to the original audience. You see, because he's speaking to a people who are currently under Roman rule, people who are responsible for the death of the Jesus that they worship. That's one part of it, but not to mention that this is the time of 62 to 65 AD during the reign of Nero. And Tertullian, uh, who was a historian, commentator on what happened in the, in the beginning of the church, he said that Nero was the first persecutor of Christians, that Nero had a specific burden for making Christians' lives miserable. Now, ironically, the leadership that Peter is commanding these people to be subject to is the leadership that will be responsible for Peter's death, that years later, under Nero's reign, Peter would be crucified. Now, how in the world could Peter say something like this? 
if, if, if Nero was so bad, how could, how could Peter say this to these Christians? And the reason is because Peter knew that God is the one who gave all authority. Paul says this in Romans 13, the authorities that exist have been established from God. Jesus actually said something similar when he stood before Pilate, that, that Pilate would have no authority lest it had been given to him from the Father. See, the reasons why Christians are to be subject to civil authorities is because God has delegated that authority to them. But Peter also sheds light on the purpose of civil authority in verse 14. After saying, be subject to all human institution, he says, these are the ones who are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. <clears throat> Excuse me. See, Peter lays out the reason why civil authority exists is to punish evil and to promote and to praise that is good. Because we live in a fallen world, civil leadership will inevitably fail to adhere to God's purpose for government. You see, Christians aren't necessarily meant to follow leadership blindly, right? As long as they are doing what God is instructing them to do, punish evil, to promote what is good, Christians are to follow. But, but when leadership violates that, Christians are allowed to push back. They aren't supposed to follow blindly, right? Following blindly is how guys like Hitler can be so destructive, and in cases like that, it's justifiable for Christians to protest, to rebel against civil authority, right? Men, great men, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a great example of that. He was a Lutheran pastor who set out to take out Hitler, right? He saw the atrocities that Hitler was doing. He saw the evil. No longer did that leadership promote what was good. He promoted what was evil. And as a man of God, he could stand against that, to denounce that, and even take action Against that, we even see uh, examples of this from Scripture in Exodus one, where Pharaoh commands the, the Jewish uh, midwives to kill the babies that are being born, but they rebel against Pharaoh because he is telling them to do what is evil. They say, "No way, we're going. We're going to get around this. We're not going to do what he says." See, and Peter actually provides a framework for Christians to understand how, how do we have the wisdom or the discernment to know when to, to fall in line and when to follow and to be subject to authority and when to push back against this. And, and he lays this out in Acts chapter 4, just after he is told to stop preaching. He says, who are we to follow? Who are we to subject ourselves to, to man or to God? You see, when they're contrary to each other, Christians always default to subjecting ourselves to God and what he, he lays out for us in his word, how we should operate. See, if Peter were to stop preaching the good news, there would have not have been a church that carried on even to the 21st century now. Because of Peter's disobedience to civil leadership, we have a church today. We gather and proclaim the name of Jesus freely. But in most instances for us, they are not that severe. 
Yes, our leadership fails, but not to the magnitude worthy of rebellion. So as Christians, we live honorably. We subject ourselves to authority. And this can be hard to do. Some of us may not want to do it. I guess it depends every four years who's in office. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But we are called to subject ourselves to this authority, not because it's easy, not because it's convenient for us, but because it is for the sake of the Lord. That's what Peter says. For the Lord's sake, subject yourself. So submission to civil authority isn't for us. It is for Jesus because we are representing him as Christians. In our response to civil authority shows what we believe about God. If God is really the ultimate authority, the one who puts authority in place, then we can be subject knowing that God is ruling and reigning even over our political leaders across the nations. Even if this means being subject to to rulers who are not favorable, who are bad. And because of these men and women who may abuse their power, hardships will arise specifically for Christians. It came during the time of Nero in the first and second century. It began with Nero and continued on for century after century. And we will face ours today. But realize this. The posture of a Christian under leadership accomplishes something that words do not. Look at verse 15 with me. Because be subject to every institution, for this is the will of God. Okay, not very often in your life will you hear this. This is the will of God. When you're mar- choosing the woman you want to marry or the man you want to marry, he's not going to say, this is the will of God for you to marry. He won't say that. When you're going to buy a house, he won't audibly say this. But this instance, God says here, this is God's will. What is that? That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, you might say, why, why would Peter be so rude and classify some people as foolish? It seems offensive to me. But it's important for us to realize that everyone at one point fit under this category. We were slaves to our former ignorance. The flesh drove us in a way that was foolish. But there are some people who are going to remain fools. So what does it mean that silence, that that these goods works will silence the ignorance of foolish people? Now, honestly, I wish I had a filter on Facebook for this. I could just silence the, the foolishness of people. See, most people are skeptical about the intentions of Christians. Oh, they're, they're just some sort of weird cult. They've got bad motives. Like, it kind of looks good, but really they're after my money. They've got a building campaign that they need to meet. They're, it's just a club for good people. See, but when we do good works, including submitting to civil authorities, those false accusations, because if you're a Christian, you know that those aren't true. See, what Christians want 
They want to give, not to take from outsiders, those who are not Christians yet. Christians have something way more better to offer than to take from outsiders. So those false accusations get hushed by our good works. It shows that we are for the flourishing of all people. In the places we work, where we live, places we recreate, where we work out, where we do our hobbies. And I'm not just talking about handing out bottles of water or giving free car washes on a bless the city church day. I don't have a problem with that. But those good works are just a sliver of the good works that Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about the types of good works that Christian are, Christians are called to that mostly go unnoticed. Spending time with that at-risk youth. Taking in children through safe families who might be in crisis. Supporting Kenyan children so they have clothes and can get an education. Being good listeners, right? How do, you, how, do you me- how do you measure that? What are the metrics for being a good listener? That's a good work. We forget about it. We think so often good works are doing things with our hands. But one of the best things, the best good works that you can do is be a good ear for a friend, for a neighbor. You can't put metric on that. Beautifying public spaces, making the neighborhood a safer place by getting to know your neighbors, being hospitable to strangers, supporting local businesses, being a generous tipper. See, for our good works to be effective, this isn't something that you just do from time to time as if it's an occasional ordeal. This is a posture that you must continually take day by day, moment by moment. It's something that you must become. It's an identity that you live in. Now, Peter says it like this in verse 16. He says, to live like this is to be a servant of God. See, living like this, to live as a servant of God will inevitably produce good works. In fact, this is the only way to accomplish truly good works. Now, there can be counterfeits out there for good works. You can go down the soup kitchen and serve out of all kinds of selfish motives. You can be a loving husband and and do all these grand gestures for yourself instead of for your wife. See, this is a counterfeit. It gives the appearance of a good work, but really, it's laced with selfish motives. So what is it that makes a good work the real deal? A good work is a good work when you are taken out of it. A good work is a good work when it's not about you. See, a good work is that which is selfless, a genuine expression of caring for others. It's a matter of self-forgetfulness. Man, that's something that we need as a culture. Now, I hope there's some self-examination going on right now. What are the good works that are coming from your life? Are the things that I consider to be good works truly good works? Or am I just serving myself? Are they laced with self-motive? Am I consistently 
doing good works. Not just occasionally. Am I taking a posture of a servant to consistently do good works? Am I a self-forgetful person? Do I go to bed tired at the end of the day because I am pouring myself out for others, or do I go to bed well-rested because I've been trying to cater to myself? See, all this comes down to this question. Am I living in my identity as a servant of God? See, if not, it's likely that you are not serving God. Because serving God will always produce good works. Now, if you're feeling convicted right now, I want to offer you three options. I think there's two good options here for you and one uh, not so good. But here we go. Number one, if you are a Christian and you feel convicted right now, then I would like to offer you the sweetness of repentance, new mercy for today. To turn from whatever your life is in service to, whether it be your comfort, your family, your, com- your, your, your wealth, your status, and turn back to Jesus. Now, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, then you have two options left. Number two is either to do nothing, and number three is to be freed. Now, number two, doing nothing, it, it means to keep living the way you live. Keep subjecting yourself to lesser, incompetent rulers. It might be your so-called autonomy, your political party, your lifestyle, your sexual desires, or your counterfeit goodness. Now you're probably like, Sam, what kind of option is that, right? It's not a great option. But some of us need to stick with this path. You need to exhaust it. You need to squeeze everything out that it has to offer. But here's what you'll realize, whatever it is, that it will not deliver what you're looking for. It will not lead you to joy. It will cause destruction. Instead of flourishing, it will create create misery. Instead of beauty, it will break you. It will burn you. It will leave you scarred. Why? It's because you did not subject yourself to the proper ultimate authority. Listen, this is more important than what I just said, but listen to this. When that happens... When you come to the end of yourself, when you come to that end of that road, you will not hear, and I told you so, or see a shaking of a head in disappointment. There won't be an extra dose of guilt or shame to pile upon you, at least not from someone who really understands mercy, not from a Christian. Recall the prodigal son. He had a whole I'm sorry speech ready for his dad after exhausting that path. And he comes down, and you know what his dad does? His dad runs to him. That's mercy. See, that mercy, when you come to the end of that road, will still be available for you. What you'll find is option three is still standing. As long as you have breath, that option is still here. Now, what is that option? 
to be freed. Now, really, truly freed. To be liberated from what you are currently subjected to. Now, let me frame something up for you so you can understand this. Sin is not just doing naughty things, okay? Sin is foundationally being subjected to anything or anyone that is not Jesus. It is yielding to anything, anyone but God. Who are you listening to? See, this internal internal yielding will inform our external behavior. So in that sense, sin does become visible. But sin is not just about doing the wrong things. It's about being subject to the wrong master. Now, Jesus says in John 8, anyone who yields to something other than God is a slave to sin, that you are trapped. You're in in chains and shackles. See, if you're not a Christian, this is why. It's because you are enslaved to a cruel master, either unconsciously, unconsciously or consciously, and you need to be freed. You need to take me up on ex- uh, option number three. Be freed. Now, there are two parts to freedom. The first part is the dethroning of the insufficient ultimate authority that you've already been bought into. That means to be taken out from underneath the thumb, uh, underneath sin's thumb. And the second part is to place yourself under the proper, worthy, ultimate authority. One that produces beauty and flourishing. Now, the misconception here is that, that freedom is really only number one. But true freedom, real freedom, requires both parts to be subject to the proper authority. Because freedom, if it's only number one, that creates a vacuum. You might be free for a moment, but at some point something's going to come along and fill up that space and you're going to be subject to whatever it is again. This is why Peter says what he says in in verse 16. Just live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up evil, but is living as servants of God. You can be free, but until you have that ultimate authority that is worthy of that spot, you'll revert back to your sinful ways. Now, if we want to flourish, if we want to become beautiful, then we need to be freed and and being subject to the proper ultimate authority. You probably know where this is going. This is going right to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But Jesus is a different kind of ruler. Jesus does not come as an authoritarian tyrant. He does not come and say, bow, now. Comes with gentleness, humility, and meekness. See, Jesus is radically different and more appealing than every other authority that you have the option of yielding to. See, because as Mark 10, verse 45 says, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus 
Jesus' actions of servanthood accomplished something that words could not do. And as a servant, he ransoms us from our slave master. Listen to this. The ultimate authority, the one who is completely worthy and deserving of all honor and being subject to, he becomes a servant for you. You know that scene where Jesus is betrayed where he, their um, disciples are just gotten done arguing about who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Let me sit at your right hand, Jesus. And then Jesus gets a towel and bends down before the feet of his disciples, these guys that are a bunch of ragamuffins. He bends over and washes them. He takes the lowest position in the household. What king would do that? What ruler would become that kind of a servant? Jesus is radically different and more appealing than every other authority that we have the option to yield to. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has freed you. He has ransomed you. In his life, he has perfectly given himself to the Father's authority in all things. John 5 tells us that Jesus only did or said what the Father told him to do. He lived the perfect life that you failed to live, internally and externally, always doing good works. There was never, never for a moment one of Jesus' good works that was laced with self-motive. He poured himself out for people who did not deserve. And we've seen it in his death where Jesus shouldered the weight of punishment of your sin right there on the cross. That's what a servant does. A servant shoulders the extra weight so you don't have to. And he did that for you on the cross. He gave himself up for you. And in his resurrection, he emerged victorious. Check this out. Because we do not serve a dead king. He emerged victorious, proving his own authority over death and the grave. He reversed the effects of sin's tyranny, where everything that was sad will become untrue. Death, decay, misery is replaced by beauty and flourishing when we are subject to the worthy, to the proper authority. Okay, so how do I become free? And Christian, listen up here. We are freed when we receive the mercy of God revealed to us in the suffering servant. Peter's gonna go on, and we'll spend time diving into this next week, but, but this, he sets it up so well right here that we cannot help but just take a look. For this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in him. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to who? To him who judges justly. Jesus knew the ultimate authority. God the Father. And Peter closes here with four distinct marks of what it looks like to be a transformed servant. Because when you experience this mercy from Jesus, when Jesus has served you, you become a servant. Look at verse 17, how he closes this. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now these are Four marks, the four marks of a posture of, ins- of a servant, which, by the way, were perfectly embodied by Jesus. To honor everyone means this, as I'm closing. Every human you will come in contact with was created in the image of God, imago Dei. Because of this, they have inherent value, dignity, and worth, and unlimited potential. So this means when we come into contact with every single person, we treat them as such. We are not greater than them because they are made in the same likeness we are. And we become a servant. We take the lower position of everyone. Love the brotherhood means to do the first part, honor everyone. But on top of that, specifically have a love for fellow Christians. Now this is not... Just a generic sort of, I love all the people of God across the world. Yes, we do that. But what this means is love the brotherhood. And you cannot do this unless you are in community and on mission with us. Not just with us, in any context as Christians. To love the brotherhood requires you to be in community. Now, this means we shoulder each other's burdens. We pray for one another. We serve one another in profound ways. In ways that causes people to look at us and say, why would you care for someone like that? Third, Peter says, fear God as the ultimate ruler. As the one who judges justly, we are to honor, love, and be reverent toward God. Who has the loudest voice in your life? God, if you fear him. And finally, he like wraps all three of these up and then sort of has this application for the last part, honor the emperor, right? In light of honoring everyone, because you're already doing that, honoring everyone, you're loving the brotherhood and you're fearing God, hey, guess what? That means you are going to honor the emperor as a result of these three things that God has commanded us to already do. Now, living in this way, to be a servant that's marked by four, these four distinctives will naturally produce good works which silence the ignorance of foolish people. But here's the deal, friends. We cannot muster this on our own. We need God's help to live in such a way. We need the spirit to be at work within us. This is my final invitation. Christian, new Christian, let us press into the mercy of God 
be transformed into people who display the excellencies of who called us out of darkness and into light through our good works as Jesus, our ultimate authority, directs us. Father, we are grateful that we have a king, a Lord who loves us so profoundly. We're thankful that you are not a bully up in heaven, waving your finger at us, telling us what to do, but you are a compassionate Father whose instruction is for our good, that we may flourish and become beautiful. And the primary way that you make this possible by ransoming us from our futile ways. And so today, as we come to the Lord's table, we acknowledge that it was Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed in order for this to be true. And as we come to the table, Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would work in conviction. You would lead us to repentance, that we would not take the cup in an unworthy manner, but would come after repentance so we can enjoy times of refreshing. And I pray that this meal would transform us, be this kind of people, people who are marked by mercy, not only for our own good, but to display your glory in Christ's name.